Good morning. So keep emailing me your questions, please. Some of you have, and I think it's been helpful for you. <laughs> I hope it has. It's been helpful for me because then I know where some of the struggles might be or where some of the misunderstandings might be. So again, keep the emails coming with your questions. And then also a reminder that on April 8th, and we have these flyers on the table on the other side of the short wall there, beginning April 8th, we're going to start our next Sunday school class. This one will conclude next Sunday, and that's called Grounded in the Gospel, and we're going to look at a Reformed Baptist catechism together. So let's pray, and we'll get started with today's lesson. Father in heaven, thank you for time today to open up your word together and to think about what it is that you have done for your people. Thank you for the word you've given us, the truth. And we ask that you would, by your Holy Spirit, help us to understand these truths that are beyond us. And help us as far as we can to, to have the mind of Christ Jesus, to know you as best we can in this life. So help us today as we study this doctrine of grace, and we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Will you turn it down just a little bit, John? It's just, it's loud for me. So this is our fifth lesson as we study these doctrines of grace together. Uh, following the open introductory class, we've looked at the doctrines now of total depravity and irresistible grace and unconditional election. So let me repeat short summaries of each of those. Total depravity. Here is John Piper's summary from his book, Five Points. When we speak of man's depravity, we mean man's natural condition apart from any grace exerted by God to restrain or transform man. That was class two. Irresistible grace. Again, here is John Piper's summary. Irresistible grace is God's work in us by which he overcomes our resistance to God and unfailingly brings about the act of saving faith. That was our third class. And here is Michael Horton's summary of unconditional election. Out of his lavish grace, the father chose out of the fallen race, a people from every race to be redeemed through his son and united to his son by his spirit. This determination was made in eternity apart from anything foreseen in the believer. So that leaves us now with limited atonement, which we're going to look at this morning, and perseverance of the saints, which will be next Sunday's subject. Limited atonement 
is also known as definite atonement and particular redemption. Those are probably better names. I think those are better names. I think the word limited makes it sound like Calvinists are saying less about the atonement. But they're not actually saying less about the atonement. We're not saying that. I think we're saying more. The Calvinist view of the atonement is bigger and better than the Arminian view. I hope to make that case. Limited atonement is also misleading because as we will see, everyone limits the atonement unless someone is a universalist and believes that every last person is saved. Which is absolutely not true. So everybody limits the atonement in some way. We'll get to that. So here is limited and unlimited atonement defined. Those are usually the way these two perspectives are framed. Limited and unlimited atonement. I think this quote from Michael Horton in his book, For Calvinism, it helps us understand the difference between limited and unlimited atonement. And it helps us understand what's at stake. All Orthodox Christians maintain that the atonement is limited either in its extent or in its nature. Calvinists believe that it is limited or definite in its extent, but unlimited in its nature or efficacy. Christ's death actually saved the elect. Arminians believe that it is unlimited in its extent, but limited in its nature or efficacy. Christ's death makes possible the salvation of everyone, but does not actually save any. If that distinction that he just made isn't clear, don't sweat it. I think it will become more clear as we go on. These doctrines seek to answer the question, for whom did Christ die? That's the question that they are seeking to answer. For whom did Christ die? And very generally speaking, an Arminian would say Christ died for everyone. And a Calvinist would say Christ died for the elect. So which is it? That's the question. What do those statements actually mean when someone says Christ died for everyone? What do they actually mean when someone says Christ died for the elect? What do they actually mean? And then which one of those is biblical? So that's what we're setting out to do. Before we figure out how the atonement might be limited, let's make sure we understand what the atonement is. I think that should be the first thing we do. This is at the very heart of the gospel. The atonement is. You have heard me summarize over and over again the gospel as the good news that Jesus came, lived, suffered, died, and rose again in the place of sinners so that sinners could be reconciled to God. Now in that sentence, part of it in the middle was Jesus suffered and died in the place of sinners. 
That refers to the atonement. That's where we're talking about the atonement. So it's at the very heart of the gospel. The atonement is that work that Christ did on the cross. G.I. Packer defines atonement this way. Atonement means making amends, blotting out the offense, and giving satisfaction for wrong done, thus reconciling to oneself the alienated other and restoring the disrupted relationship. And John Piper, again, he defines Christ's atonement this way. The atonement is the work of God in Christ by his obedience and death, by which God canceled the debt of sin, appeased his own holy wrath against us, provided a perfect righteousness in his sinless son and secured for his people all the benefits of salvation. So that's answering the question, what is the atonement? What did Christ actually accomplish on the cross? That is so important. And it is frequently misunderstood by Christians. Or many Christians have a very shallow understanding of the atonement, of what Christ accomplished on the cross. Many maintain this. I was taught this. Many maintain that the cross was merely a display of God's love for us, intended to sort of motivate us to love. They say that the cross was a moving example of self-sacrifice intended to move us to repentance. One of the heroes I was taught growing up was Charles Finney. He was a, a hero in the tradition that I grew up in. Well, Charles Finney called the atonement an incentive to virtue. In other words, he did not believe the atonement accomplished anything. He believed it motivated people to do good things. He also said this, the atonement of itself does not secure the salvation of anyone. So Michael Horton responds by saying this, of course, about the cross, it does disclose God's love, but only because beyond expressing good intentions, it actually secures our salvation. In fact, if Christ's death is merely an object lesson rather than necessary for the satisfaction of God's justice, it exhibits divine cruelty rather than love. Right? If. If God the Father gave up His Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross, not to accomplish anything, but just to set an example, that'd be cruelty. But that's not what happened. That's not what happened on the cross. That's not the nature of the atonement. You and I are sinners. And we are condemned before God. Deserving the just penalty of His eternal wrath and there is nothing you and I can do to rescue ourselves. So you and I are in the courtroom and we're guilty. And you and I know we're guilty. And everyone else in the courtroom knows we're guilty. And we are awaiting the commencing of our sentence. 
And according to John 1.29, remember what John the Baptist said when he saw Jesus Christ. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, which means that Jesus was the fulfillment of all the sacrificial ceremonies. Think of the Old Testament during which the guilt of sinful people was symbolically imputed to an animal which served as a substitute, appeasing the wrath of God through its death. So Jesus came to be the ultimate lamb. Jesus came to be the ultimate substitution. And he died in the final sacrifice. So through the atonement, a sinless substitute was sacrificed in the place of sinful people so that God's wrath may be satisfied and repentant sinners forgiven. That is the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. That is what Christ accomplished on the cross. It is at the very heart of the gospel and it should be at the very center of all of your thoughts and all of your affections. So look at Romans chapter 3 with me. Verses 23 through 26. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. For this is all of us. We have all sinned and we all fall short of the glory of God. And yet, we are justified. And how are we justified? By His grace. As a gift. Through the redemption. That is in Christ Jesus. This is the atonement. You and I are sinners. We fall short of the glory of God. And we have been justified. We have been declared innocent is what justification means. But we're not innocent. So how have we been declared innocent? By His grace. As a gift. Through the redemption. That is in Christ Jesus. Whom, this is Jesus. God put forward as a what? A propitiation by His blood. To be Received by faith. So what is it that we have received by faith? The good news that God put forward Jesus as a propitiation by his blood. Propitiation is a word we don't use often. A propitiation means a wrath bearing sacrifice. So when we're told that Jesus is a propitiation, it means that he was substituted in our place and he bore the wrath of God in our place so that we could have redemption in Christ Jesus. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over 
former sins, right? What are you doing, God? You're just passing over these sins. You're not punishing these sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Because there's a problem when we know that God is just and we see him forgiving sinful people. What comes into question when God declares guilty people innocent? God's righteousness comes into question. His justice comes into question. How can He be just? By sending His Son Jesus to be a propitiation by His blood. So a Christian sin does not go unpunished. If you're a Christian, it's not like your sin goes unpunished. You don't pay the price for your sin. Jesus paid the price for your sin. But God is just. In other words, sin is always punished. That's the atonement. There's other verses you have there that you can read on your own. The last one is 1 Peter 3.18. What does this say? The same thing. Christ also suffered for sins. That's the atonement again. He suffered for sins. The righteous, that's Jesus, for the unrighteous, that's you and me. Do you hear that substitutionary language? The righteous for. The righteous in the place of. The righteous instead of the unrighteous. And what did he do in the place? He suffered Why? That He might bring us to God. This is the atonement. This is the atonement. And it's the greatest truth in the Bible. It's at the very heart of the Gospel. What God has done through Jesus Christ to reconcile sinners to Himself. When I was in high school, it's funny, I remember this. The popular question was, what would Jesus do? Uh, There was a book, I think it was by Charles Sheldon, called In His Steps. And I read that book, and it was a a wonderful book. And it was, God used that in in my discipleship, and it it was really good for me. And I began asking the question, asking that book, what would Jesus do? And everybody had the bracelet, right? A little plastic bracelet with the initials WWW. J.D., what would Jesus do? There's nothing wrong with that. But there is a much more important question. What has Jesus done? That's the most important question. Not what would Jesus do, but what has Jesus done? The atonement. The atonement. This is what Jesus has done. Okay, let's move on to three basic views now. That's what the atonement is. Let's move on to three basic views regarding the extent and the effect of the atonement. And here they are, and they're on your outline. That's okay. That's funny. Option one. So here here are, this is basically it. Here are the three views when it comes to the atonement. Here's where the argument is. Option number one is the universalist position. 
That position is Christ's death saved every person. That's the universalist position. It's the only. That is the only position on the atonement that is truly unlimited. So Arminians will say unlimited atonement, but it's not. And we'll see that. The universalist position is the only one that's unlimited. Let me explain. His death was sufficient for all and was intended for all and all will be saved. That's the position. Christ's death, therefore, is unlimited in its extent. It's for everyone and it's unlimited in its effect. It actually saves everyone. I don't think I need to argue against that position. It is totally wrong. Hebrews 9.27, every man is destined to die once and then to face judgment. And everything we just read about the atonement totally excludes that as being a biblical option. The reality is not everyone will be saved in the end. You know this. So let's move on to the, the more prominent arguments. Option two, the Arminian position. The Arminian position is this. Christ's death made the salvation of every person possible. That's the Arminian position. Again, this is what I grew up being taught and believed. His death was intended to save all, but only saves those who believe. Sounds good. Christ's death is unlimited in its extent. It is for everyone and limited in its effect. Okay, how is it limited in its effect? It's unlimited in its extent. It's for everyone, but it's limited in its effect because this atonement does not save all it intends to save. It intends to save all. And we've already established all are not saved. So it's limited in its effect. It doesn't actually save all that it intends to save. It comes up short. It doesn't accomplish what it sets out to accomplish. This is one of the reasons we talked about what the atonement is. Because I want you to start thinking, is that what we just learned about the atonement? Is it something, before we even get into the argument more, that is intended for all and doesn't accomplish it? For all it intends to accomplish it for. It saves no one. This view of the atonement. That's acknowledged. We'll see by Arminians. It only makes salvation possible. And you've heard the text. I'll just read a couple of them. But you've got them on your outline. First Timothy 2.6. Talking about Christ. Who gave himself as a ransom for. What's it say? All. It's intended for all. Is the argument. Which is the testimony given at the proper time. Hebrews 2.9. But we see him for a little while. Was made lower than the angels. Namely Jesus crowned with glory and honor. Because of the suffering of death. So that by the grace of God. He might taste death for everyone. 2 Corinthians 5. The world. John 1.29. The world. 1 John 2.2. The whole world. Those are supporting texts, Arminians would say, for this view that God intends salvation for 
everyone. He's designed the atonement to save everyone. To make it possible for everyone. Now here's a logical argument. Just an initial logical argument. One of the problems is those texts, and you can read all of them and think about this. Those texts say too much about what Christ has done for everyone, all, and the whole world. In other words, if those verses mean, as an Arminian would say, if those verses mean that Christ gave himself as a ransom, tasted death, and reconciled every last person, then what? Every last person would be saved. So those verses say too much, I would say, about all and about everyone and about the whole world. If we're saying that that means that God tasted, that Christ tasted death for everyone, that he reconciled everyone, that he gave himself as a ransom for everyone, that's what the Arminian contends, then that would mean that everyone would be saved. That's a logical argument. But Arminians would read all those texts and they would agree with the conclusion of Millard Erickson. So here's an Arminian just quoting him, a scholar. God intended the atonement to make salvation possible for all persons. Christ died for all persons, but this atoning death becomes effective only when accepted by the individual. This is the view of all Arminians. Now, personally, though I wouldn't word it that way, I could almost agree with that statement. I could almost agree with that statement. If, uh, let me explain. If, if an Arminian says, I believe Christ died for the sins of the world in such a way that anyone who believes will be saved, I would say, Amen. I totally agree with that. Jesus died for the sins of the world in such a way that anyone who believes will be saved. Amen. John 3.16 explicitly says that. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. Amen. Christ did die for the sins of the whole world in such a way that, you see what we're doing? We're, we're saying what we mean by that. So if you say Jesus died for the sins of the world, I would want to know, and if I said that, you should want to know, what do you mean by that exactly? And if you mean, well, anyone, anywhere in the world who believes will be saved. Amen. This is true. The whole world 
may be saved by the death of Jesus if, that's a very important if, they would only believe. So it's not like we're saying the blood of Jesus is insufficient for the sins of the whole world. That's not what we're saying. Theologians, starting with Peter Lombard in the 12th century, have been very careful to make that distinction that the atonement is sufficient for all. It's in the canons of Dort. They put it this way. This death of God's son is the only and entirely complete sacrifice and satisfaction for sins. It is of infinite value and worth. The blood of Jesus. It's not like we're saying the blood of Jesus only saves a limited group, which we are going to say. It's not like we're saying that because it's only sufficient for them. No, we're talking about the blood of God. The blood of Jesus is of infinite value and worth. And the authors of the Canons of Dort said it is more than sufficient to atone for the sins of the whole world. It's not only sufficient for the sins of the whole world, it's even more. You can't, you can't, you can't quantify it. It is of infinite value and worth. Michael Horton says, Calvinists proclaim Christ as the all-sufficient Savior for all people everywhere. And when people do believe, we assure them that there is not a single sin, past, present, or future, that can separate them from the love of God in Christ Jesus. You've been that sinner, or you've known that sinner that questions whether or not the things they've done can actually be forgiven. And so we say, the atonement the blood of Christ is sufficient for all. So limited atonement does not mean that the blood of Jesus holds only enough merit to forgive the elect. R.C. Sproul said, the atonement's meritorious value is sufficient to cover the sins of all people. So the whole world may be saved by the death of Jesus if they would only believe. But I would believe more about the atonement than that and say more about the atonement, which then may prompt an Arminian to argue. So again, we're saying more about the atonement. Remember what I said at the beginning of the class? The Calvinist view of the atonement, I would contend, is bigger and better than the Arminian view. A Calvinist, listen, a Calvinist does not believe that the death of Christ merely makes the salvation of people possible. A Calvinist believes the death of Christ actually saves people. That's option three. The Calvinist position. Christ's death saved his people. His death was intended to save the elect and actually saved the elect. Christ's death is limited in its extent. It is intended to save only the elect. And it's unlimited in its effect. 
It saves the elect, not just some of them. It saves all it intends to save. So let's look at the verses. We'll go through these quickly. And I'll just highlight where this is. And again, for whom did Christ die? That's the question we're asking. And the Calvinist position is that Christ's death saved his people. Christ died. The atonement was for the elect. Matthew twenty twenty eight. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Not all. We've got conflicting things. This is why we have to look beyond just what might be, we think, obvious at a first reading. The Arminian holds all these verses that say all, all, all. But we have verses like this that say many. Mark 10, 45 says the same thing. Isaiah 53, 10 through 12 says he bore the sins of many. We've got a limited group now. Okay. Next verse. John 10, 11. I am the good. This is Jesus talking. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life. For the sheep, not for everyone, for the sheep. Matthew 1, 21, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people, not all people from their sins. Titus 2, 14, who gave himself for us. And you look at the context, the us is the the people of the new covenant who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. John fifteen thirteen. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Acts twenty twenty eight. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. To care for the church of God. What about the church? Which he obtained with his own blood. So his blood was shed for who? According to Acts 20, 28. The church. Ephesians 1, 4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. That we should be holy and blameless before Him. For whom did Christ die? For those chosen in Christ Jesus. And finally, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her. For his bride. Christ died for his bride. So here we have verses saying that Christ died for many, for the sheep, for his people, for the people of the new covenant, for his friends, for the church, for those chosen in Christ Jesus, and for his bride. Let's start to wrap this up. Savable or saved? That is an important question. And it gets to the heart of the matter. Did God send Christ 
to the cross to make salvation possible? Or did God send Christ to the cross to ensure the salvation of his people? Or simply, does the death of Christ make us savable or does it make us saved? That's the difference. That's the difference. That's the question. We've looked at the texts and what they say. Now let's step back and ask the question. Your understanding of God, your understanding not only of the verses that we looked at, but your understanding of the entirety of His Word, your understanding of the Gospel and the atonement. What do you want to say when you think of the truth of God's Word? That Christ makes us savable? Or that the death of Christ actually makes us saved. Charles Spurgeon, that he believed in limited atonement. He said, we are often told that we limit the atonement of Christ because we say that Christ has not made a satisfaction for all men or all men would be saved. And so we're said to limit the atonement. But. And see if this sounds like limiting the atonement. But we say Christ so died that he infallibly secured the salvation of a multitude that no man can number who through Christ's death may not only be saved, but are saved, must be saved and cannot by any possibility run the hazard of being anything but saved. Does that sound limited? That's not limited. Not in its effect. The atonement accomplishes what it sets out to accomplish. Jesus on the cross at the end did not say it is now possible. It is finished. What was finished? The possibility of salvation? The salvation of his people. It is finished. So here is the Arminian argument again. Christ died for everyone because he loves everyone. He loves all men equally. I can remember teaching this doctrine and can remember arguing philosophically that, that, that this is how we know that God loves all people unconditionally and equally and the same because Jesus died for everyone. He doesn't do anything more for anyone than he does for the other. And that was the argument for this love of God that is equal for all men. So that that sounds good, I think. I think that's attractive, that argument. I really do. Christ died for everyone because he loves everyone. He loves all men equally. And if you start saying he loves some more than others, then I don't think God is loving anymore. That'd be the problem that I used to have with that. It's an attractive argument. Here's the Calvinist argument. And I want you to hear the difference. Christ died for his people, not everyone. Christ died for his people because though he loves everyone, 
with a providential love, he loves his people with a particular and powerful love. So think about this. This is the difference. The Arminian says that God loves all men equally. And so the extent of that love is great. The extent. He loves all men the same. He loves all men equally. The extent of that love is great. But the very nature of that extending love is shallow and weak. So you get to say he loves everyone equally. That sounds nice. But then when you start talking about what that love is, it is very shallow. And it is very weak. It loves not enough to save, but only make savable. I'd say that's a shallow love. If it's a love that it loves enough only to make you savable, to open up the possibility for salvation, that's very shallow compared to a love that actually saves you. In the same way, it is weak. It loves without intensity and it loves without power and it loves without efficacy. Think about this with me. In Arminian theology, hell is filled with people for whom Jesus died. Every last person in hell, according to Arminian theology, Jesus died for them. Hell is filled with objects of God's saving love. That's the implication. He intended to save all. And so hell is filled with object of God's saving love. Hell is filled with people God intended to save. Now, that is gospel destroying. That is gospel destroying because it means, Christian, God didn't do anything different for you than he did for those in hell. That's anti-gospel. What are we always talking about here? What are we always Rejoicing about here. What are we going to sing this morning about here? What Christ did for us. The good news. The gospel. The atonement. What Christ did to save us. But what if Jesus didn't do anything special to save you? He did the same thing for you. That he did for those in hell. That is not true. That is not what Ephesians 5.25 says. What did it say? We read it. Husbands, love your wives. And what's the example? As husbands love their wives, what's their example that they're supposed to look at? As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So you see, it doesn't work. It is the example 
for husbands as they love their wives, that they're supposed to love their wives the way they love every other woman on planet Earth. That, he, that, that husbands are to love their wives equally with all other women. Is, it, it breaks down. It doesn't, this verse doesn't work if you believe in a lim, unlimited atonement. Christ died for everyone. He loves everyone equally. Husbands, love your wives that way. All the women that are here this morning, none of them, I guarantee, are offended. In fact, they are encouraged when I say, I love every one of you as your pastor. And I love my wife as her husband. And those are very, very different loves. So you have the providential love of God. God does love everyone. Absolutely undeniable. God loves everyone. He loves everyone through his providential care for them. He causes the What does the sun just come up and just the elect feel it? Does the rain just water the gardens of the elect? Is it only elect people that are healthy? Is the only elect people that enjoy some happiness on this earth? Is it only the elect that have the, 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 the punishment for their sins? I said that wrong. Uh, it, those who are not elect, do they immediately receive the punishment of their sin? They don't. This is the providential love of God. But there's more to God's love than that. There's also his particular love. The love for his bride. The love for his wife. The love for his people. The love for his church. And they are those whom Christ came to die for. So if we don't have that, we don't have Romans 8, 31 through 32. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, us believers all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things. If you're a Christian, you're us. You are among those for whom Christ died. And you read his word and you pray and you study and you listen to sermons and you understand more and more not what Christ did for every last person equally, but what Christ did for you personally as one of his chosen children to die for and forgive and justify and adopt. Option three, Christ's death saved his people. So we're out of time. We're out of time. And maybe we'll come back to a couple of the questions that I had here that I wanted to answer for you. I wanted to talk a bit more, then maybe I'll just put something up on a blog about the those verses that we looked at that Arminians often use so that 
you're persuaded that you could give good answers. Look at the context of those verses and see beyond the logical argument I made why they're not teaching those verses that Christ died for everyone. I also wanted to answer a common question that comes up after this. I remember when I was first convicted that this was true. Uh, I was nervous to tell people that God loved them. And, uh, and, I, and I was nervous to tell people that Jesus died for them. In fact, I think I was confronted once by a Calvinist when I was telling someone that, that Christ died for them. And he, he, he told me, don't say that. You can't say that because you don't know whether or not. In fact, the signs are now that they're, they're not a Christian, therefore they're, they're not elect. And so I wanted to answer those questions. Can we tell people God loves them? Can we tell people that Jesus died for them? I, th- I do think that we can. I think we need to be careful how we say some of those things. And, of course, not say things that are untrue. But I don't think we need to be so paranoid that we just don't speak in ways that, that people can understand. Why does God offer his gospel to people who are unable to accept it? I think that's a good question. Same, why does God give commands if he knows that people are unable to keep them and and there's probably more and other questions that I know have come up as we've studied these things. There's always questions. There's always questions. And and some of the questions we can answer and some of the questions we can't. And that's okay. Sometimes there's more to learn and there's more to study and there's more light that we have in God's word. And we're so blessed as we read and understand. And some of those questions are are, are cleared up. And our, our convictions are confirmed. And then sometimes there's questions and we, we just have to be comfortable and okay saying, I don't, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. Or I think there is an answer to that, but I just don't know it yet. Or you know, maybe someday. Um, and so there's, there's all kinds of questions. Please continue to email those questions that you have. Um, next week we're talking about perseverance, which we mentioned this morning. And I'll also seek to set aside some of that time for some questions and answers, either ones you've already asked or ones that you could ask next week. Let me close in prayer. Father in heaven, thank you for the time you've given us today to study your word and to think about the death of your son, to think about the atonement, to think about what was actually accomplished on the cross for sinners. Help us to understand these things. Help us to delight in these things and and help us to apply this truth to our life. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.